Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, please go to biota.org slash podcast. For folks who are listening in this evening, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. And for folks who are listening at a later date, this is a historically recorded podcast. I think the date at which it was recorded, let me just double-check was November 26, 2008. However, I'm recording this because I will be going away, and if you're listening to this podcast currently, you're hearing it because I'm away. So folks are free to call in. There is also an active chat room. The contact number is 646-200-0640. The topic for this evening is going to be how artificial life could develop artificial intelligence and how to create a simulation that keeps evolving. These are, in fact, two topics which are ultimately intertwined, and I'm going to use this evening's discussion to talk a little bit more about how to write these kind of simulations. I do invite folks who are listening in to call in to participate. The call-in number, again, 646 because this is a time independent podcast, I'm just going to tell a little anecdote. I normally give some news and notes here, uh, but news and notes will be relatively immaterial with regards to uh, the nature of this recording. So recently I noticed that uh, John P. Daigle and Robert Rice were both in Raleigh, North Carolina. Robert Rice, who has appeared on previous Biota Lives, as has John P. Daigle, uh, is normally based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, but just by chance, I saw that the two of them were going to both be in Raleigh. John had moved up to, to Raleigh, I guess, for some meetings or something. Uh, so I contacted them both and let them know that they were going to be in the same location. And this method has been used in order to create uh, grey thumb chapters, in order to link folks who are part of the biota community. And it's something that I like to maintain as part of my duties as the uh, biota editor to make sure that Biotians and shared locations get together and actively communicate. It's this kind of process which is also critical in creating Greytham chapters. And for folks familiar with this podcast, I give a lot of shout-outs to Greytham chapters and also assistance to folks who want to create a Greytham chapter in their own location. One of the easiest ways to get this kind of information is to join the biota.org Facebook group, and that way you can see other fellow Biotans where they are and if by chance you're in the same location or a similar location to other biotons, you can organize some kind of get-together. The current uh, Graytham groups that seem to be actively working are Boston and Silicon Valley. There are also chapters in London and the Netherlands. I haven't heard any updates with regards to when there is going to be a new London chapter meeting, nor the Netherlands, although Gerald de Jong is a frequent contributor to Biota Live, so he will no doubt give updates. But the important thing with regards to the, creating, uh, the creation of Graytham chapters is that it just requires uh, two or more motivated individuals. If you look at the creation of Graytham Boston, it was really two or three motivated individuals initially and similarly with regards to Silicon Valley. So I think they've gone, all the Graytham chapters have gone in completely different directions with regards to what they actively do. Boston has remained relatively academic when, you know, they're, they're giving a presentations, although after the presentations I hear that there's oftentimes a lot of congregation and discussion. The Silicon Valley chapter, in contrast, whilst they have 
presentations is really more about a group of friends that get together. And I think what uh, Grantham Silicon Valley has highlighted is that when you have a group of like-minded folk meeting on the same location, there is continued motivation to get together. There's a kind of lazing of ideas and discussion points. And recently, Al Lundell has been giving news stories to, to update the community locally and also give a particular Grantham Biota twist on stuff that's coming out in the news. So really, as you uh, you know gather together in groups, obviously you can find your own mediums with regards to what you want to talk about and how you want to hold these kind of uh, get-togethers. But it's really just important in one way. We communicate electronically via podcasts, via email, via this kind of communication. But I think the ability to actually gather together with folk and also give feedback and things like that is, is very important. From my own projects, I don't know how this will historically play out, but I am Darwin. Uh, the videos associated with i-am-darwin.org were recorded at the recent Greytham Silicon Valley meeting, and shouts out to Al Lundell for that. As you're listening to this, you may have time still to contribute I am Darwin videos, but something to consider. The call-in number, again, 646-200-0640. For folks who don't want to call the U.S. number, there is an active chat room which is inviting all participants. It will enable you to interject questions, get a sense of what is going on if you don't understand what is being talked about. But the topic for this evening, how artificial life could help develop artificial intelligence and also how to create a simulation that keeps evolving. Now, when I came to these two questions, and these two questions were submitted by Rudolf Pinnikoff in the Netherlands, shout out to Rudolf for submitting these two wonderful topics, it occurred to me that they were fundamentally the same problem. But I think in order to come to this conclusion, I probably need to take a couple of steps back and do some analysis with regards to the questions of artificial life into artificial intelligence and also the questions of kind of continuous evolution in artificial life simulation. So the first question is really, what is intelligence? And per prior narrative, if folks can go back to the uh, Roy Plotnick, uh, Can Artificial Life Explain the Cambrian Explosion podcast, you may remember Roy giving a basic interpolation of um, kind of floating creatures in the pre-Cambrian period that moved into feeding grounds and how they sussed out where these feeding grounds were and how this motivated intelligence in some regard slowly but surely it moved in that direction and through my own development my own thinking i have always thought of intelligence as a kind of continuation of evolution it's a, a kind of survival method which really exists on the same continuum as things like big teeth uh, so you know from feeding ground searching to carnivorousness i mean it is all part of the same continuum in some regard and when you look at intelligence in this way it is in some way removed from uh, what I like to consider the anthropomorphic divide or just the idea that there is some kind of human superintelligence which is far greater than any other creature. This is certainly echoed by uh, recent conversations with Dick Gordon. And I think it's an interesting line in the sand with regards to artificial life simulators is how they come to uh, approach intelligence. And certainly I'm going to discuss this a little bit more in this very podcast. So... The question with regards to intelligence in terms of some kind of survival continuum kind of begs the question how you rate intelligent systems. And in Dick Gordon's book, I wrote about this quite extensively because ultimately 
in my chapter for Dick Gordon's book, I was trying to explore this idea that intelligence was actually an emergent property and should come out of artificialized simulations, but more importantly, that artificialized simulations could be used to to greater understand intelligence in some fundamental sense. I mean, I think if we look at the, the contemporary problems in modern science, intelligence is one of those problems and means and method of describing intelligence, and I think artificial life is a ideally located in order to deal with this kind of problem and talk to a greater degree about means of quantifying intelligence, but also explaining the evolution of intelligence in some quite profound way. So in Dick Gordon's book, the, the metric for intelligence that I use, and this was mainly due to the fact that I wanted to characterize systems that were more intelligent than humans and find a good metric to understand where human intelligence fitted in the kind of our phylogenetic scale of, uh, of intelligence capacity with the view that I wanted to show that there were vastly more intelligent systems than human intelligence and you always need a good metric in order to conduct that kind of proof. So the metric I came down to was how hard the systems were to kill with regards to you know, what the necessary stopping power was. I think I used a, a Teddy Roosevelt metaphor in this regard. But the idea of kind of exponential values relating to, uh, you know, it, it took one human to take down the intelligence system versus 10 versus 100 and so on. And this creates an exponential metric where, you know, when it takes one human, the, the um, let's call it Barlow intelligence metric value is at zero. Uh, when it takes 10 humans, the metric value is at one. When it takes 100 humans, it's at two. So this kind of progression with regards to uh, intelligent metrics, and of course it begs the question that there are negative exponents as well where it uh, you know, takes far fewer than a single human or actually proportionally um, less intelligence in order to kill an intelligent system. So therefore you have a kind of continuum of values between you know, negative some large number and positive some large number as a means of defining intelligence where you would assume a human would exist somewhere around zero. So from this metric, you then return to the idea that um, uh, there's some kind of predatory behavior which is fundamentally intelligence. And I think this is a, an interesting metric in terms of simulating artificial life environments to use to, you know, filter back to intelligence. I think it provides... Um, you know, some kind of continuum link between finding feeding grounds in some regard and moving forward into, you know, creatures that hunt and uh, uh, are cannibalistic or parasitic or all these kind of interrelationships which can, uh, you know, lead towards survival and don't necessarily need to end in death as well. I think, you know, the metric is a, a deceptive one in terms of talking about actually killing intelligent systems that uh, I'm sure there is some uh, parasitic analogy in the metric somehow. So, moving from this example, it begs the question, how is one even going to create a simulation where one can have predatory behavior evolving? And if you kind of took a step back and looked at the uh, artificialized systems on offer, certainly the ones that are talked about frequently in Biota Live, it, it begs the question, how can so many different and divergent sets of simulations all converge on this one term, artificial life? And I think it's in some regard to do with the 
um, the presuppositions that the simulator makes when they come to the, you know, the, the process of writing the simulation. Leading back to how to write a simulation that keeps evolving, this ultimately is to do with your frame of reference in the simulation that you create. So, I mean, we have good examples of simulations that are solely with regards to movement and evolution of movement. That, you know, may well be interesting in that simulation space, but you then have simulations that presuppose some degree of movement and are looking to, you know, evolve intelligence out of that movement. And that, again, presupposes a particular simulation space. And from then, you have uh, uh, artificial life simulations that... Uh, you know, have a certain degree of intelligence and looking to form communities. And then you have uh, simulations that presuppose communities and are, you know, looking to form even larger groups. I mean, I'm thinking here specifically of Swarm, which is, a, you know, one of the fundamental artificial life simulations in this regard. So if we have a, a phylogenetic scale again of artificial life simulations, it begs the question, how can we keep these simulations evolving? Is there potential to create what Dick Gordon refers to as kind of origins of artificial life simulation that will then give you the origins of artificial intelligence through its progression. I am hopeful that these kind of simulations will exist. I think the, the missing element so far has been computational power, but it has also been uh, a framework in order to use this computational power. I mean, this is what my chapter of Dick Gordon's book focused on as well, this idea that we have a real goal for an understanding about how we can write more effective artificial life simulations to cover these kind of bases, particularly with regards to contemporary computing ideas of atomization of processing and all kind of stuff that we talk about in a precursory way on, on Biota Live. So filtering into this process, there are two competing ideas which I don't think are necessarily competing but appear to be competing when initially stated. I think the most important thing when you create a simulation environment is the diversity environment. Is it needs to be an environment which, uh, you know, where simulated entities, simulated agents, be they creating movement, creating intelligence, creating societies, have a, a sufficient degree of, of chaos that they can uh, evolve through it. So you either need a lot of chaos, you need a, a, a very changing environment, an environment that requires a certain degree of evolution, or you need a lot of competition within that environment, or you need both of these factors. And certainly if you look at uh, artificial life simulations that have been relatively successful, they have typically contained uh, one or both of these elements. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about these things in the context of um, you know, how to create a simulation that contains, for example, the chaos. The environmental chaos that is needed for uh, evolution to kind of continue uh, through, you know, movement, intelligence, communities, and this is, in some degree, a kind of arbitrary continuum because there are a number of uh, ebbs and flows through this that uh, can create a, a wide variety of, of outcomes that can't necessarily be described by this continuum. So let us look at the chaos of the environment. So. There's an interesting question with regards to creating a simulation environment for artificial life simulations. And it, the question really is, should you start in a physics simulation? Should you start in uh, simulating weather or landscape creation or all the elements that will be critical in creating a chaotic environment for you to simulate artificial life in? My own view, and I think this comes through uh, my development of Noplape and also the assistance that I've given with other folks, uh, the ALSIM folk, uh, 
um, you know, Dave Kerr passively, these kind of folk. There are some great benefits in actually creating a, a physics simulation or an environment simulation first, or at least pretty heavily in parallel with the initial development. This has a, a certain degree of complexity, a certain degree of depth. We're going to be talking in a, in a later podcast about an artificial life curriculum. And I think this is an important question for artificial life developers or folks that are interested in starting artificial life development is, is there a kind of precursory or is there a barrier of entry with regards to creating these kind of simulations? And to a certain extent, just as a kind of popularizer of the ideas of artificial life, I wanted to say, no, there isn't. But fundamentally, there are some basics that you probably should get used to, obviously, things like programming, but also there are various simulation metrics that are useful, uh, an ability to write uh, standard time-evolving simulations associated with very simple things is a skill that is worthwhile when you start creating an artificial life simulation. My background prior to writing Noble Ape was um, with a variety of different kinds of simulations, landscape simulations, uh, various kinds of uh, flight simulations, UFO simulations, UFO flight simulations, standard games, basically, these kind of things where you are creating an environment and working through that environment in such a way that it provides you know, things that are interesting. Ultimately, what I'm talking about here with regards to complexity and chaos in the environment it's relatively critical that these things come through the simulation as you start it. So what do you need for that? Well, I started writing these kind of computational mathematics simulations at a relatively early age. Certainly I was using principles in calculus before I understood what calculus was fundamentally, the ideas of kind of DT time components and these kind of things. I was writing considerably before I actually understood what the math was. But you need to have this kind of play element in order to create a, a relatively basic simulation environment. The two examples that I have offered in my notes relate to um, flowing water and chaotic weather, but also things like changing terrain uh, and challenges that require evolution of movement or approach. Well, this may all sound very complicated. It may sound that it you know, requires multi-dimensional calculus and all this kind of stuff, but realistically, um, you can start with a kind of checkerboard grid-related problem and um, create a sufficient level of uh, chaotic detail in order to create quite a comfortable uh, environment for an artificial life simulation. Certainly, uh, Jareem, for example, pr provides this very well with his um, bioit simulation and... I think, you know, there are, there are other examples of simple grids that provide just enough chaotic environment for, for artificial life simulations to take off. It doesn't have to be particularly complicated. However, the examples that I offer with regards to flowing water and chaotic weather in particular, let's explore these. Flowing water is actually remarkably simple to write a simulation for uh, if you think of it just in terms of particle chunks or even linear chunks or any degree of volume and movement, you can write a relatively simple uh, simulation or at least a physics where you can create uh, fish and plankton and rocks and all these kind of things just because you have a kind of time evolving component. You can write impossible water simulations which are kind of uh, rotating around a circle but each processing of almost like a kind of train on tracks, so to speak. Um, and that would work quite well in terms of the basis of an artificial life simulation. I like the examples of weather because they add the 
it land-based, sea-based, or air-borne simulations. Uh, weather is a very interesting phenomenon to include. Um, it's certainly something that you know was, was relatively central to the development of nodal ape, and I moved the weather in a couple of different directions before I settled to the version of weather that I have currently. But the idea of um, even simulated seasons or other kinds of weather effects, things that haven't even been considered in terms of standard biology, ideas of acid rain, these kind of things, uh, precipitation, various nutrients being either removed or deposited by weather environments. I mean, all these kind of things add to the uh, kind of chaotic soup that you want to have in an environment that you have uh, some kind of evolving uh, simulation components in simulated agents. The other aspect is terrain, and I've talked quite a bit about terrain through previous podcasts, certainly privately with uh, Gerald, also publicly in this podcast with Gerald, with Larry Yeager, with these kind of people who appeared in the podcast previously. And I think the ability to have uh, some diversity of terrain in writing um, even simple evolving movement simulations, these kind of things, is relatively critical. It provides a kind of chaos in an environment which ultimately just means that the um, the things that come through these kind of simulations uh, tend to be very visually pleasing or at least very visually reminiscent of things that exist in the real world and it's often nice to have these kind of connections with the real world in your simulations as points of you know, interrogation or understanding that you can say, well, at least you've gotten that far in terms of what you've done. But in doing this, this is just one part of the, the two-part discussion in terms of uh, chaos or competition. And with regards to competition, this is also something that has been talked about quite a bit with regards to previous simulations uh, discussions in the biota community, certainly uh, Polyworld springs to mind. Also, obviously, a lot of Joe Ream, uh, Dave Kerr, uh, Swarm, a wide variety of, of prior simulations that have uh, competition as being a central part of that. And here there are some interesting problems, and certainly I reflect on uh, what is being done in parallel with regards to genetic programming. There's a whole school of theory in genetic programming associated with um, simulated islands and almost uh, um, kind of spatial or cultural tribes that exist when genetic programming algorithms are, are isolated. And I think this is a beautiful lead into uh, the potential of artificial life simulations in this regard. So in terms of competition, um, if you have the same kind of creature and you just isolate them in different areas, you have potential of having very different kinds of creatures fundamentally that have just been perturbed either through their genetics or through their uh, community evolution or whatever is going on in the environment that they share. I mean, this is a fascinating idea. If you can imagine that you have a, a simulated agent and you have a thousand of them and you divide them into you know, 10 separate islands with roughly 100 on each of the islands and you leave them for, you know, however many simulated years, you get completely different uh, cultures, you get completely different means of interrelating and probably there is some component of the environment in which they are um, coexisting which, you know, leads into what they are. I mean, this is a central uh, interest or um, hypothesis with regards to the development of noble ape but fundamentally what came out of the environment uh, related very closely to the, the societies that would evolve amongst the noble apes and I think this exists in other simulations as well. It's a fascinating idea and certainly if this is triggering anything in the 
and the folks listening in or the folks who are interested in uh, writing their own simulations, I think this is certainly one to try. We have a guest in the chat room. If the guest would like to contribute a question, I will uh, certainly diverge my monologue towards that. Also, if the guest would like to participate, we have a call-in number, 646-200-0640. It's a US number, so you can either participate through the chat or you can call the number in order to participate. So I was talking about um, the competition within the environment, um, particularly with regards to the notion that um, if you had the same kind of species or the same kind of simulated agent through separation, you could get a certain degree of competition. You don't obviously need to separate the same agents in order to get active competition. I mean, the island example is a beautiful one with regards to there actually being internal competition on the island itself. I mean, I think that is a fascinating uh, potential for an artificial life simulation. Certainly, I enjoy those aspects of noble ape, that when you have a, a group of noble apes that congregate on an island, what uh, tends to happen is some kind of hierarchical dominance that is either based on age or a wide variety of factors. But, I mean, if you're looking to create an artificial life simulation, that could be a potential end for you. The other thing to talk about is uh, different kinds of creatures. I mean, I think this is the interesting thing, certainly a carry-on from what I do with noble ape, is that there are so many different simulated biological species in the noble ape environment, and I think if you were creating a, a chaotic artificial life simulation, you would look to have uh, different kinds of creatures as well. And this is an interesting problem because it begs the question whether the different kinds of creatures have uh, either evolved from a, a single source or uh, whether they are fundamentally different. And if they are fundamentally different, if they have different simulation metrics, the example I like to use in Noble Ape is the size of the cognitive simulation of the various creatures. So, you know, you have some... Um, Perhaps artificial imposed scale associated with uh, intelligence with perhaps the apes on top followed by the cats followed by, you know, smaller creatures, birds, these kind of things that all use fundamentally the same, uh, the same uh, cognitive simulation but just smaller and smaller brain sizes fundamentally and how this changes the way these species interact is uh, very interesting. But I mean, there's also potential here and this goes back to the interesting uh, extended phenotype discussion for almost a kind of uh, intelligent agent versus scripted agent alternative. This is a, an interesting problem, almost a, a paradoxical dichotomy that can exist within uh, artificial life simulations that, you know, perhaps there are a series of scripted agents and then there are active participants. It's almost like the Truman Show fundamentally in that regard. But, uh, you know, maybe you should start with all scripted agents bar one and then move it progressively to, you know, more and more intelligent agents altogether. This was always the problem with Noble Ape in terms of the Adam and Eve Ape, the concept that um, no matter where you started the Noble Ape simulation, you would have to either have a situation where there were um, maybe half a dozen baby apes that mysteriously watched up in the environment and then started evolving based on the fact that they had an ability to survive for a certain length of time in order to create a culture and environment, you know, versus the problems that, um, you know, would come out of, of having a, infant ape-like creatures in a relatively high predatorial environment or at least certainly one that wasn't necessarily suited for this kind of uh, 
you know, this kind of setting. So it's an interesting problem when you create these kind of simulations. I mean, how do you start this setting? So if we look at this kind of dreaded dichotomy where you have a situation where you kind of ease intelligence into the simulation by uh, starting off with all scripted bar one and then progressively moving down, it begs the question whether you can have a kind of always um, a group of agents in the simulation which are fundamentally scripted. This was certainly the solution that I came up with to a certain extent in Noble Ape. I mean, the thing about the biological simulation in Noble Ape is it's completely independent of scripting. It's to do with uh, properties of the landforms and these kind of things, but it is still fundamentally um, deterministic in some regard, although there are certain chaotic elements. The movements of certain creatures are fundamentally deterministic, and I don't think it really hurts the Noble Ape simulation, but it's certainly something to consider when you create your own simulations, and particularly if you move beyond the kind of uh, evolving movement-style simulations, if you're looking to start with a, a presupposition that you have moving agents that have certain limbs and certain interactions, and you know maybe there's the potential for more limbs, less limbs, these kind of things, but still the kind of agents that they interact with in the environment, there's a potential there for scripted agents. And I think that's an interesting problem with regards to these kind of simulation so this still returns to the fundamental question how do how do i create such a simulation and really what i've done so far is talked very much about kind of high level concepts uh, high level philosophical concepts associated with creating these kind of simulations and avoided the nuts and bolts the the sheer practicality of what one actually writes in kind of coding terms and i think the the real answer here is that the simulation needs to have more than one dimension. And here, it's obviously one dimension plus time. But for these kind of um, dynamic evolving simulations, ideally, they need to be set in at least two dimensions and preferably three or even potentially four. Now, Tierra and these kind of set of simulation examples in terms of one-dimensional or at least memory-expanding simulations, they, you know, they did well for their time. And certainly I think there is potential even for um, bacterial simulations and grid-based simulations to move in a completely different direction towards what I'm talking about here. But if you're starting just writing a, an artificial life simulation and you're looking to do something interesting with the environment that you create, you probably should start with at least two dimensions. And if you want to do things like terrain and things like that, you can kind of spoof how the, um, the terrain exists in a two-dimensional simulation. You don't always need to have um, you know, a third or a second and a half dimension in terms of the, the height values of the land and these kind of things. So don't be too overly concerned with regards to your own mathematical or programming knowledge. Uh, it certainly won't be a limiting factor when you create this kind of simulation. But the other thing that I've been talking about somewhat implicitly is how you actually create um, these ideas of intelligence, how you create the um, aspects of even uh, genetics, the notions of evolution and genetic algorithms and how this all fits together um, in terms of what a simulation looks like. And I think the thing I return to, and it isn't just because I uh, started my philosophical education with uh, Plato, where actually, honestly, I probably started with Bob Dylan, but that's a, another story. But if you start exploring dualism, you start to realize that in order to write 
and this comes through in even Gerald Jung's experimentation with Darwin at home, but in order to write an interesting artificial life simulation, you need to have two simulations running in parallel. And this is what's really quite fascinating with regards to developing artificial life, that uh, it isn't just a matter of creating a simulated environment and then setting out these agents. The agents themselves have... Uh, a wide variety of kind of internal components which make them uh, a simulation in and of themselves. So how does this dualism apply? It's things like simulated perception. It's the idea of the dualist black brain. And here I think beautifully of Polyworld. I mean, Polyworld's a great example of this. There's a, a you know relatively rich external world that the sea monkeys live in, and yet they have a very detailed and almost hardwired internal neural network system um, that Larry Yeager talks about how much time he spent in all these kind of weightings in the neural network and these kind of things, and this is an important secondary simulation. So when you create an artificial life simulation, don't think of it purely as creating an environment component and seeing what happens through this environment. You are probably going to have to create some quite interesting representation. Um, now, even you know, even things with regards to you know simulated and evolving movement. Obviously, the genetics and these kind of representations represent a, a different domain of simulation. So. I think this idea of dualism, potentially even more than just two um, simulated components that go into an artificial life simulation is fascinating. And it really is the, the kind of secret source with regards to developing an artificial life simulation that isn't often explicitly talked about, but I think I probably should emphasize in the criteria of writing these kind of simulations. When you start thinking about uh, this kind of dualism, you end up with an interesting problem that what you see in the, um, the you know, if you're simulating a landscape, if you're simulating weather, if you're simulating, uh, you know, various biological processes and then you're simulating intelligence and you're simulating ways of coping with all these kind of things and you're simulating genetic evolution and you're doing all these kind of things in parallel, you start to realize that there is in fact a subset of the mathematics that you need to use and this is fundamentally what I return to in, in Dick Gordon's book, that if you can use mathematics that is applicable to all areas, you'll probably get slightly faster uh, results than if you use a different method of modeling uh, for example, you know, various biological processes or simulated agents versus, um, you know, internal perception or these kind of things. And this was a fascinating problem in Noble A. It was something I spent many years, in fact, contemplating, particularly with regards to the parallels between the weather simulation and the cognitive simulation. And this is something that still leaves me scratching my head. The cognitive simulation was heavily optimized by Apple originally and then Intel.